Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. Thank you, as always, for joining. This episode features Corey Hofstein. He returns to discuss his return stacked ETF products. You can find him at returnstackedetfs.com. You can also listen to his podcast, Flirting with Models. It is arguably the podcast with the best, I'm going to refer to it as album art in the game. And you can find him on Twitter at Chostein. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I enjoyed this conversation. I am on a somewhat exploratory mission to find interesting ETFs to highlight. So that's what we're doing here. And I hope that you learn a thing or two and enjoy listening to Corey and I chop it up. This episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. DeLupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. DeLupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. DeLupa's data sheets include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. DeLupa's Excel plugin can also update your existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. Bulge bracket banks and major multi-managers are trusting DeLupa for their use in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping their models up to date. Visit delupa.com forward slash business brew to create a free account and learn more about how Delupa can increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. As always, nothing in this show is financial advice. Please consult an investment advisor before making investment decisions. Everything in this show is for entertainment purposes and educational purposes. And do your own due diligence. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Corey Hofstein for a return episode to discuss return stacking, double return. How about that? Yeah, returns return on returns. Square stacking them. Well, thanks for having me yeah. on, buddy. Great to be back. Uh, you are welcome. I am happy to have you on. I pinged you because I know that you have come out with uh, a couple of new products, and I am at a point in my life where. I'm realizing the importance of tax efficiency and diversification, which perhaps is a little late to get to this game, but better late than never. And I wanted to have you on to talk. And I was listening before we just came on. I was listening to your appearance on Millennial Investing. I thought she did a very good job. Yeah, she was phenomenal. Very well researched. And I think what's always interesting about these investing concepts is when trying to think through who your audience is and communicate them at a level at which your audience can hopefully appreciate what you're saying. And I will admit out of the gate here, that is not my strong suit. Like I sit in my nice ivory tower of academic quant research and I spend most of my time talking to other quants. And every once in a while, someone will say, hey, will you, you have a conversation with, with so-and-so about this concept? Like, Absolutely not. I am not the right person. <laughs> 
I, I have, I am horrible. Uh, so hopefully I'll, I'll give you something good here in terms of trying to communicate these ideas. But yeah, it's uh, I thought she did a phenomenal. Yeah, job. well, I think I'm reasonably good at asking the. Um, could you explain that to a five year old question if we get there? So I, I'm not too worried about it. But you know, really, I, I don't want to cut you off, but uh, really quickly. So in terms of explaining to a five year old with with the concept of return stacking, we've actually started using Legos. Oh, really? Like visually, we use Legos to try to explain it. Like very much as a five. Huh. I like that. Hopefully the big ones, the small ones can cost a lot and they're very hard to see at times, but. You know, we've got these big foam ones that we, we can stack together to show what all the stacking returns. I like, like it. Well, do you want to give a little bit of background on sort of the premise of what it is that you're trying to accomplish here and, and how people should think about what the words return stacking even means? Yeah, absolutely. So, so let me just start. Return stacking is a phrase that was originated by my colleague, Rodrigo Gordillo at Resolve Asset Management. We co-authored a paper a few years ago, and, and that's where the phrase was born. It's really not a new concept to the industry, and I'll get into that this in a second. I think probably the best lead into this conversation is explaining the problem we're trying to solve yeah, and then how return stacking tries to solve it. So, look, you've been in this industry for a long time. I've been in this industry for a long time. One of the things that maybe is is surprising to some but maybe not to most who are in the industry is like we we generally agree on nothing in this industry you can get two people who invest the same way and they will violently disagree on the details this industry as much as we hold it out as being a science is very much an art there's no fundamental truths to it and so there's very little that as an industry we all agree on with maybe the exception of diversification that all else held equal, which is going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting in this statement, but all else held equal, more diversification is better than less diversification. And yet what we find when we look at most people's portfolios from sort of a, a top-down macro perspective is very little diversification. They typically just own stocks and bonds. And here in the U.S., those stocks tend to be very U.S. dominant. And then even within there, often you see it's just a smattering of 10, 15, 20 stocks, all of a particular style. And I, and I don't want it, people to get me wrong. Every portfolio should probably be built on a foundation of stocks and bonds, right? They are assets that have actual cash flows associated with them. There's strong reasons why you should have positive expected returns in stocks and bonds. They are tremendous foundations for any portfolio. But I think what 2022 laid bare is that they are not immune to becoming highly correlated in certain market environments that they become exposed to the same risks. So for example, if you look back well before the 1990s, what you'll see is positive correlation between stocks and bonds, largely due to the risks of things like inflation shocks. Hmm. And so this question comes up is, which is, if everyone agrees diversification is good, why don't we see more diversification in portfolios outside of stocks and bonds? And it's my belief and from my experience that really this comes down to the fact that for most people, the way they have to introduce diversification into a portfolio, it's a process of addition through subtraction. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say your average investor, and this is sort of you know, average financial advisor, if they look at their average client portfolio, probably looks something like a 60-40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. 
And let's say they want to add 20% of something else. Maybe it's commodities, maybe it's gold, maybe it's crypto, maybe it's some alternative investment strategy. They have to sell. For them to add that 20%, right? They got to sell. They got to sell stocks and bonds. All right, so what does that mean? It means you're selling something that is low cost and the stock side, very tax efficient, very transparent to clients and what clients anchor to and have high confidence in that over the long run, you're going to have a positive expected return as long as you're well diversified enough. And you're swapping in something that is tends to be higher cost, less tax efficient, less transparent to the client as to how the returns are going to manifest or why the returns are going to manifest. And you end up with this problem of, of also creating a hurdle rate that's implicitly higher. If I want to add gold, for example, to my portfolio, I need gold to outperform the things I sold, the stocks and bonds I sold, before it's additive to the portfolio in comparison to what I had before. And so this addition through subtraction problem in, in talking and dialoguing with a lot of advisors seems to be the reason why they're not adding alternatives or diversifiers to their portfolio. It's just, it's too much of a behavioral friction and it's too much sort of of a, of a math friction for them to do it. And so when it comes to these alternatives, one of the things that that we sort of say is, look, it's important that investor, that they, these alternatives and diversifiers have positive expected returns. We want them to be uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. But more than anything, we want investors to be able to hold on to them. Because it doesn't do us any good to like sell the stocks and bonds, buy the uncorrelated investment, and then have have a bad experience and make it so that that portfolio isn't something that investors can stick with over the long run. They end up selling it right before they need it or those diversifiers actually add value to the portfolio. And so what return stacking aims to do is say, well, let's not try to find the holy grail alternative that satisfies all these needs. Let's rethink portfolio construction from like a ground up first principles perspective, like, can we build a portfolio a different way in which it allows us to retain the stocks and bonds and introduce these diversifiers as an overlay on top? So instead of, say, taking your 60-40 portfolio and making it a 50-30-20, 50% stocks, 30% stocks, 20% alternatives, can we keep it as a 60-40 and just add 20% alternatives on top. And that was the, the question. And the answer for us is this return stacking product suite and solution. And I'm happy to get into how the, the details work. But that was sort of the big fundamental problem we were trying to answer was like, how do we get diversification, more structural diversification into a client's portfolio while recognizing all of these problems that most investors face when trying to introduce diversification? I liked what you said about you know, if you want to add gold, it's got to outperform in order to be, in order to justify the decision. The other, the other alternative is it can improve your drawdowns or, you know, your sharp ratio or whatever, but it's a hard thing to go to a client and say, look, you made less, but your drawdown risk was lower, right? Like that's not how people process right. the benefits of diversification. Well, you're, you're, you're spot on because from a macro perspective, what we really care about is how does how does the portfolio behave, not how does that line item behave. And so it's actually true. You could have something that underperforms stocks and bonds that's still additive to the portfolio 
if it reduces portfolio volatility enough. Yeah. Because from a compound growth rate perspective, we care about that trade-off of expected return versus versus volatility. And so that's a great subtle nuance. You know, again, something something worth getting into the details on. But for the most part, you do tend to see most people look at this on a line item basis, which isn't the right way to look on it, look at it, but they do. And again, you need that whatever you're adding to outperform the thing you're selling for most people to behavioral to behaviorally stick with it. Well, and especially after such a long bull market, right? I mean, it's hard to even even I feel like and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like even after 2022, I mean, we've still had a long run of a bull, and I'm not sure that people are really like worried about how does something perform in a downside scenario. My my perception of reality is that. People are still looking at the next leg up instead of maybe thinking about what maybe the next decade's choppy or God forbid it's down or something like that. I, I don't know that we're there yet. You're absolutely right. I mean, U.S. a U.S. stock bond portfolio in the 2010s had its highest realized sharp ratio, the highest risk adjusted return for a decade ever on record. Yeah. Right. And so you come out of that period and you go, well, it's no wonder that most people have sort of ended up conforming into that position. Because this business is competitive, and if you're a financial advisor competing against other financial advisors, one of the things you're competing on is performance. And so sort of just from a evolutionary competitive perspective, everyone gets competed into that best performing portfolio. But that doesn't mean it's going to be the one that's resilient for the next decade. Certainly it wasn't in the, from 2000 to 2010. Yeah. What was it from 2000 to 2010? I mean, obviously, it depends when you start, right? But, uh, I mean... Yeah. I mean, if you start, like, 1231-1999 to 1231-2009, stocks, especially on a, on a real return basis, were slightly negative, I yeah. believe. Right? So, you'd have, you'd have lost a decade for stocks with a tremendous amount of volatility. Yeah, yeah. Along you had two busts. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... When I say stocks here, I mean, I'm going to just say U.S. total market. I'm not going to, you know... It is what it is. Bonds did pretty well over that period, but that 60-40 on a real return basis, I don't think eked out a, a more than a, you know, 100 or 200 basis points on a real return basis. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of all to live through for not much return. It is. It is. And that that was a period, right, that commodities did very well. Gold did very well. Emerging markets did very well. Alternative currencies did very well. Active trading strategies like managed futures or long short equity did very well because they were able to take advantage of growth versus value or domestic versus international. All of which sort of led to a huge growth in diversifiers in investor portfolios that all got unwound in the 2010s because nothing beat just the passive US 64. Hmm. Do you mind explaining what managed futures are for those that don't know? Oh. So managed futures are an active trading strategy. You can think of this as sort of a hedge fund strategy. There are um, these things called futures contracts that trade around the globe. Futures contract gives you either the, the right to buy or sell an asset class at a future date for a specific price. And those asset classes are stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. So you've probably heard someone talk about the price of oil. Well, when they're talking about the price of oil, what they're typically talking about is actually what's the futures contract trade for, which is basically saying, what are people agreeing to buy or sell oil at, at this certain date in the future? Usually it's about a month out. What 
managed futures is is really any strategy. It's an umbrella term for any strategy that trades these contracts. And you can go long or short them. So you can profit from the price of an asset going up, but you can also profit from the price of an asset going down. You can trade them against each other. So profit from an increasing spread between of prices between assets or, or a decreasing spread in prices between assets. You can trade different calendar terms. So I might, for example, bet that current cocoa prices are going to stay low, but future cocoa prices are going to be high. So there's a, a lot of flexibility in the types of strategies you can build. The most popular strategy by far and away is something called trend following. And trend following, you basically say when the price is going up, you think it's going to keep going up. And so you buy and you go long and try to profit from the price continuing to go up. And when the price of an asset is going down, you're going to sell the futures contract and try to profit from the continuation of, of price going down. And you will do this across dozens and dozens, if not some firms do it across hundreds of futures contracts. The major futures contracts being probably the ones people have heard of, right? All your major equity indices, so S&P 500, NASDAQ, you've got your major currencies, Euro, Yen, Canadian dollar, Australian dollar. You've got your major bonds, so the Euro uh, Bund. You've got the, the UK gilt, you've got US treasuries, and then your commodities, right? You've got oil, you've got gold, but you can have really weird things too in these markets like Chinese apples, hmm. French power, Mongolian interest rates. Like some of this stuff gets really fat-tailed to these really cool and unique markets. Yeah. The, the book, I, I forget what it's exactly called, but it's about the turtle traders. That's where I first learned about yeah. the... Uh... CTAs. Yeah, famous, famous example of, of people who are applying very systematic trend following rules. And trend following goes back to the 1970s. And one of the things you find with trend following is it, is it adheres to that let your winners run and cut your losers short rule. And so when you look at the return profile of trend followers, because they're trading all of these markets and they're doing this concept of letting the winners run and cutting their losers short, they tend to have a very skewed return profile returns tend to be small and their winners tend to be really big. And so they tend to have go through these periods of like no return choppiness, small drawdowns, and then you get a big explosive move and then you get choppy, no return, and then you get a big explosive move. And so trend following did really well during the commodity run in the early 2000s. And then in the 2010s really went sideways, nowhere. And then did incredibly well in 2022 when it was able to go long commodities. It was able to go long the dollar, short bonds. There was a whole bunch of macro trades that it was able to, to get its teeth into and, and hold the trends long. And so it's, it's a great strategy, in my opinion, because it has historically been uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. It's historically created a positive excess return. It's historically done very well during equity drawdowns, historically done during well during inflationary periods. But man, is it hard to hold on to hmm. because you can go five, six, seven, eight years where it does nothing. And people are willing to, to do that for stocks. People are even seem to be willing to do that for bonds. I mean, bonds in real terms, having, depending on what tenor you're looking at, haven't gone anywhere in five, six, seven years. But when you talk about an active trading strategy, when it goes nowhere for five, six, seven years, people really start to ask questions about, is this thing fundamentally broken? Hmm. 
I wonder if, if part of the reason is people understand fundamentally that cash is coming into bonds and stocks and trend following can kind of feel a little bit, at least to me, like playing a video game a little bit more. Like you don't really care what you're, what you're trading. You're just trying to catch a trend. Has this all been arbed out or whatever? But that, that's exactly when it's about to work. I- I think that's that's spot on, right? The the way I sort of think about the world is you have your asset classes that are true cash flow generating asset classes. And at the end of the day, so long as you're not buying in an absurd valuation, there is a true return source there, right? With equities, you should be there there's dividends and buybacks and and a claim value, right, that that equity truly has on a business. It should be worth something. And there's a cash flow generating business underneath. Same with bonds. There is some hopefully cash flow generating entity behind the bond and you have the legal structure around it that provides you the cash flow. So those are like very real tangible assets. Then you get into a world of like gold and commodities that some commodities have true production value. And you might argue there's a reason why if you buy a commodity, you can actually expect a positive return. Maybe it has what's called a convenience yield behind it. Like there's there's ways in which you can use it in a production that if there's a shortage, you can profit from it. And so, but it gets a little weirder, right? Because there's not immediate cash flow generated to it. And then you get into the world of trading strategies, right? And so managed futures is very clearly a trading strategy where you have to ask yourself, why is why do I expect this thing to generate positive returns, yeah. right? Is it? a risk premium or am I taking advantage of other traders? And I'll give an example, sort of a risk premium, like merger arbitrage, right? When one company agrees to buy another, the price of the company they're agreeing to buy often jumps up towards that price that they agreed to buy at. But it doesn't get all the way there. So let's say company A is going to buy company B for $20. Company B might only trade up to 19 And there's a dollar there that represents the market's perception of risk that that deal is not going to close. Well, what some people will do is they'll short sell the the, the buyer, buy the the company that's getting acquired, and try to capture that that little bit. Or they'll they might sort of buy a diversified set of companies getting acquired and, and sell the market. There's a couple of ways to implement this, but they're they're literally just sitting there and waiting for that dollar to compress out of the price for the deal to close. That, in my opinion, is a risk premium because they're they're earning that return, that a little extra dollar for the fact that that deal could fall apart and the company could drop back to whatever price it was trading at prior to the acquisition. So you can argue you are getting paid for providing a service to the market by being willing to bear risk. That trading strategy to me is a lot more sustainable over the long run. You're not going to partake in it unless you think the juice is worth the squeeze. There needs to be enough risk premium there for you to take the risk. Other trading strategies don't necessarily have a clear risk premium. Managed futures. Why is me buying wheat when it's going up, expecting wheat to keep going up? Like what risk premium? Am I am I earning that? Yeah. It's harder. There's a lot more behavioral explanations about people not pricing things correctly and and not adhere like market prices not adapting efficiently. That explains it. Some people have tried to argue you're providing a liquidity service to the market and particularly in commodities to producers and hedgers, and there's a risk premium there. 
but that's not necessarily going to be true in something like currencies or bonds or equities. And so it's it's a much harder one from a confidence perspective to say, like, this thing can't get armed away by other parties playing in these markets. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to put a pin in that thought, and then we're going to come back to that. Do you mind going into the products that you have come up with and what you are trying to offer the market with your return stack products? Because you have a bond and a stock yeah. one, correct? Yeah, so we we have three ETFs that we've come to market. With. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the simplest one, if you'll allow yeah. me. Yeah, because I think, no, I think that's set, the best way to start. Yeah, so so I mentioned this idea. The whole goal of return stacking for us is to say, how do we get more diversification into an investor's portfolio, recognizing that most investors we work with are constrained to just buying mutual funds, ETFs, and individual stocks and bonds. They're not buying derivatives. Well, the idea of the return stacking suite, and these are this is a suite of ETFs that we're bringing to market, is that for every dollar you invest, we're going to give you a dollar of either core stocks and bonds, and then we're also going to give you a dollar of another asset class or investment strategy. So simplest example, our return stacked global stocks and bonds ETF, RSSB is the ticker. Every dollar you give us, we're trying to give you a dollar of global stocks and a dollar of U.S. Treasury bond exposure. Why is that useful? Well, consider the case someone who is a 50-50 investor. 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Let's say they have $100. They've got $50 in stocks, $50 in bonds. What they could conceivably do is take, instead of having $50 in stocks and $50 in bonds, they could put $50 in our ETF. Now, because our ETF provides a dollar of stocks and a dollar of bonds for every dollar invested, that $50 in our ETF gives them $50 of stocks and $50 of bonds. But they're left now with $50 of cash that they haven't invested. And they're free to do whatever they want with that cash, right? Uh, if they take that cash and invest it in some other investment strategy or asset class, you would now effectively have a portfolio. Let's say it's commodities. You'd have a portfolio that's 50% stocks, 50% bonds, and 50% commodities. You could just leave it in cash, by the way. If you kept it left in T-bills, your return of that portfolio that's 50% our ETF plus 50% T-bills would be nearly identical to the return of 50% stocks and 50% bonds. That can be valuable to some people who just like having more cash sitting around. But the whole idea here is, is this is a a play on what we call capital efficiency. Being able to get your core stocks and bonds exposure with fewer dollars invested to get the same exposure you had prior. And how is that accomplished? So that's, so that's where, right, people are going to go, well, how, if I only have a dollar, how am I getting more than a dollar of exposure? And the answer is leverage. And, and in our case, we use in this product, Treasury Futures, to get our dollar of exposure to treasuries. So when you invest with us, what it really looks like under the hood, if you were to peel back behind the scenes of the ETF, when you give us a dollar, we're going to put 90 cents in global stocks, and we're going to put 10 cents in cash, and we're going to use that 10 cents of cash to buy 10 cents of equity futures and a dollar of bond futures. Hmm. All right, now leverage isn't free, right? Leverage 
all it really all leverage really means i know people are really afraid of the term leverage and we can get into that all leverage really means is you're borrowing money so what the etf is really doing through these derivatives is saying i'm going to put a dollar pretty much close to a dollar to work in stocks and then i'm going to borrow a dollar to buy some bonds well i can't there's no way i'm borrowing for free right whenever you borrow it costs you something and and right anyone who has a mortgage is borrowed you know to, to buy their house what happens with a mortgage is you have to pay interest payments in a futures contract you don't pay interest payments it's just netted out of the return of the futures contract hmm. okay so the return ends for a for a futures contract on something like treasuries is basically the return of the underlying bond minus your cost minus minus your cost now the good news is these are some of the most competitive markets in the world and and I don't think it, well, maybe we can get into all the arbitrage mechanisms that make them so hyper-competitive if you want to. But what what's important here is if you look at the embedded financing cost that is in, in these treasury futures, it has historically been basically equivalent to the three-month T-bill rate. So, okay, what that means is I'm able to effectively borrow money at the same rate the government does. The same three-month rate the government is able to borrow money, I get to borrow money at that same rate. Right. So today that's somewhere around four and a half percent. I would urge anyone to go find a way to borrow money at four and a half percent. If you went and opened a margin account with your broker, it's going to be twelve percent. But what is 14%. what are the um, so like what are you buying? You're buying a I, I know the Treasury future, but but what I'm asking is if the if the curve is inverted, are you actually are you upside down? I love I love that question. Love that question. Yes. So so what we buy in this product is an equal allocation to two, five, ten, and long bond treasury futures. Okay. So a ladder, 25% each. And you were absolutely correct that if the yield curve is inverted, the yield, the implied yield you're earning in those longer dated bonds is less than the rate of finance, finance you're paying. And a lot of people say, well, that, why in the world would I do this? Well, if rates go down and well, long bonds go up, you could... Yes, but I, but I would also ask, why would you do that? Well, the, the, I would ask the same question. Why are you bothering to hold long bonds in the first place? Like if, you're, if the portfolio we started with was stocks and, and a basket of bonds, and I'm just replacing those bonds now with treasury futures, like why... Uh, it, well, let me let me simplify this. Start with 50% stocks and 50% bonds. That bonds, before we even talk about doing anything with like capital efficiency, I could get rid of your bond portfolio and have it 100% cash, invest that cash in T-bills, and buy a ladder of treasury futures, and it would effectively give you the same return as the bonds. So what's important here is that you're getting, it's not it's not so much like, a question of the treasury futures are going to have a negative return. It's a question of like, do you want that bond exposure in the first place? If you don't want it in a treasury futures contract, you probably shouldn't want it in a bond yeah. either. Yeah. There. So, so it's almost critical a critical timing is, issue as to whether or not you want to get in and out of bonds. But once you've answered the yeah. question, do I want bond exposure? Then this is kind of the cost of hundred percent. And one of the things I, yeah. And one of the things I would say to people is right. Bond, like it's it's to say you don't want ten year treasuries today at the current yield 
is effectively to say the entire market has priced bonds incorrectly. Yeah. Right? Which which is fine if you want to make that argument. But I think a lot of people look at this and say, well, this doesn't... Why would you do this in this environment? Well, if you believe the market in U.S. Treasuries is fairly efficient, like, the curve is correct. Whatever the curve is, like, that's the compensation you're receiving. Who am I to say the curve is priced incorrectly or not? This is not meant to be an active strategy. This is just trying to give you passive bond exposure. And this is what the bond market has priced these things at. That's where the risk premia are, are playing out. That's how much people think they should be compensated for term risk. That's how much people think they should be compensated for inflation risk. It is what it is, right? And I'm, if you have a strong view, then, then yes, you should adjust your duration exposure. But if you don't have a strong view, then right, you just take the passive, passive bond exposure as it is. Yeah, and I think, I think to the point that you were making earlier, if you're going to have that strong view... You better have good reasons because it's a, it's a pretty competitive market to set those prices. Right. Right. Exactly. So let me let me take this back, right? So in the ETF itself, you're going to get a dollar of stocks and a dollar of bonds. And the return is going to look like a dollar of stocks, a dollar of bonds minus a dollar of cash, where cash is going to be T-bills. That's sort of what the return of the ETF should look like. So if I take 50% of my money and I put it in that ETF... I get 50% stocks, 50% bonds, minus 50% cash. If I take the rest of my portfolio, 50% of it that I haven't invested in, I put it in cash, I get plus 50% cash. And the two cash terms cancel out, and I get 50% stocks plus 50% bonds. Now what happens if I take that 50% cash and I invest it somewhere? Let's say I invested in gold. Well, now I have 50% stocks plus 50% bonds, plus 50% gold, minus 50% cash financing. And so what really matters now is I've kept my 50-50 stock bond portfolio, but if I put that gold and minus financing costs, if I sort of think of those together, I basically said I've stacked the excess returns of gold on top of my portfolio. And, and what I would be paying you for is the only way that I could go about doing that, at least like in my brain, right, is I either take out a mortgage on my house, get some sort of uh, margin debt on my on my portfolio, whatever it is. So basically, you believe that you're offering a more advantaged borrowing cost, and I don't have to manage all this stuff. Exactly. So you could you could do it. You get margin on your portfolio. You could get some other form of line of credit, a HELOC, right? You get a mortgage and free up cash. Like there's, there's all sorts of things you could do. You could manage the derivatives yourself, but a lot of people aren't comfortable doing that. And they're going to be taking recourse risk, whereas when it's wrapped in a product, it's non-recourse to the end investor. What I think is really powerful here is the, again, the implied cost of borrowing is substantially lower than what most people can access. So, so let's say even before we invest in anything, we just leave it in cash. When it's left in cash, you're effectively getting the same return as before. But let's say all of a sudden you need to use that cash for something. You are now effectively borrowing from yourself at a rate equal to the three-year treasury yield. Three years, three That's months. That's a pretty- Three months. Three months, yeah. sorry, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, three no months, worries. thank you. Three months, right? That's a pretty good rate to borrow. So, so you can do some advanced stuff here. Like, and then we're gonna, we're gonna dive in the deep end really quickly. If we're looking at mortgage rates and you're and you're getting quoted for a mortgage at 8%, right? But you've got a big portfolio of stocks and bonds. 
one of the things you could do is you could replace a huge part of that portfolio with a more capital efficient solution, take that freed up cash and have a bigger down payment on your home. And what you've effectively done is you've swapped that 8% mortgage for the borrowing rate, the floating borrowing rate of those three-month treasuries. All right? So that's, it requires having enough money, but that's sort of, you can start to make these trade-offs. That's deep end. Less deep end is, all right, you, we're not going to keep 50% cash around. Maybe we keep 5% cash around. And for people who have private investments that have capital calls, great. You can tap into that cash for the capital calls and then rebalance your portfolio back to cash when the time is appropriate. I work with advisors who talk about they had set up home equity lines of credit for their clients pre-2008 just so that they didn't have to make withdrawals from their portfolios when they're down 50%. The whole idea is, hey, we think the market's going to bounce back. Let's borrow using our house as collateral to make you know withdrawals in retirement over that period so that we can avoid the volatility that happens with stocks, right? We care about the fundamentals, but we don't want to be making withdrawals when stocks are down 50%. Well, guess what happened in 2008? Their home equity lines of credit got shut down on them. No, it would have been better is if you just have this product and you have it as part of your portfolio and there's 5 or 10% just sitting in cash, now you can borrow from yourself and no one can take that away from you, right? And again, it's that floating three-month T-bill rate. So you don't even need to use capital efficiency to add alternatives. You can actually use capital efficiency just as a tool for borrowing cash, which I think is a pretty cool utility. And then maybe one of the things you borrow cash for is to invest in some diversifier on your portfolio that allows you to add in all, you know, an additional alternative, hopefully diversifying return stream to your core stocks and bonds. And, and in your products, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have a managed futures overlay on them, yes. correct? Yeah. So, so this product RSSB is just the stocks and bonds. And this is like, this is our, uh, this is our choose your own adventure product, right? You have other alternatives you like. You like commodities. You like gold. You like some hedge fund that we don't have access to. This allows you to free up the capital and effectively layer that exposure on top of your existing stock and bond paper. We also offer what we'll call prepackaged alternatives. So we have what's called our return stacked U.S. bonds and managed futures, RSBT, and our return stacked U.S. stocks and managed futures, RSST. And the idea there is an RSBT, bonds and managed futures, every dollar you give us, we're going to try to give you a dollar of core bonds plus a dollar of a managed future strategy. And then an RSST, for every dollar you give us, we're going to try to give you a dollar of U.S. stocks plus a dollar of managed futures. And, the idea, and these, are, these are sort of sister strategies, but the, the idea here is simple. Like if you have, a, again, a stock bond portfolio and you want to add managed futures as an overlay, you can sell some bonds and buy some RSBT and you get your bonds back and the managed futures get layered on top. Or you could sell some U.S. stocks, buy some RSST, and you get your stock beta back and the managed future strategy layered on top. If I want to do a 60-40, basically I want 60-40 bonds, but I want your managed futures idea on top of it, would, would 60-40, would that work? If I just split it between yeah. RSST and... What, what I'm so, sorry, I don't know. So at know the most the tickers, extreme, but, yeah, no, at the yeah. most extreme, right, you could buy 60% RSST, 40% RSBT. And what that would give you is a 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 
100% managed futures. Okay. So you have a 200% leverage. Yeah. What's more realistic, right, is you have someone who's 60-40, and they sell 10% of their stocks, and they sell 10% of their bonds, and they buy 10% of RSST, 10% of RSBT, and that keeps them at a 60-40 and puts a 20% overlay of managed futures that makes on their sense. portfolio. That makes sense. So, again, very much choose your own adventure in terms of sizing. I personally, like in my own personal account, have leverage up towards the 35% with managed futures. I have core stocks, core bonds, managed futures. But, like, the amount of leverage, this is, this is an interesting, dis, like, distinction point. The amount of leverage that's appropriate is very much tied to the risk of whatever you're layering on top, Right. So said differently you want it to be uncorrelated well you want it to be uncorrelated but you also have to be sensitive to like how volatile it is yeah right yeah, yeah. if the thing i layer on top is is commodities right that have a vol of 20 percent, well i might only want to put 10 percent on top like or else like if i if i talk about putting 100 on top like that's gonna really add crank up my portfolio vol in a way i might be uncomfortable with but something but like what managed stacking... futures has a return profile characterized by quick cuts of losses with potential big runs. So yep. you may be yep. so you might be you might be a little bit more inclined to have a bigger slug of that. But but what if I said I'm just gonna stack short term corporate bonds? I'm gonna take a little bit more duration risk and a little bit more credit risk, right? That I think is gonna outperform cash. Like, but but in terms of like if you look at the return profile of short-term corporate bonds minus three-month T-bills, like that's not a very volatile return stream. I might be totally fine adding 100% of that on top of my portfolio, right? And so to that point, you need to be thoughtful when you think about how much you're stacking. You want to think about how uncorrelated is it to what I already have, right? The risk with short-term corporate bonds is probably decently correlated to equities in a drawdown. So how much is, you know, what's it going to do when my stuff I already own is in, is at risk? But two, how volatile is it? The more volatile it is, you probably want a smaller step. And may maybe you do this outside the products, but within the products, I mean, do you skew in the bond product more towards investment grade because it doesn't bounce around as much potentially? Or, or yeah. you know, like, how do you think about that? So we... Our goal with the base of the stack, right? So we sort of think of like, what's the base? What are we stacking on top? In the case of, say, our bonds plus managed futures, the bonds we're trying to add, we're trying to just make them as core beta as possible. And when we look at institutional mandates, what is beta in the bond space? It's the Bloomberg Barclays US Ag, right? It's just pretty much everything. That's going to be dominated by mortgage back. It's going to be dominated by treasury. It, it is going to have some corporates, but you're, oh, okay. you're largely going to be dominated by by treasuries and mortgage back. But that all said, to make the product work, we have to have cash that we can use as collateral for the managed futures program. So the way that product works is if you give us a dollar, we'll basically put 50 cents in a core bond, a super low cost core bond ETF. We'll keep 50 cents in cash in sort of money market T-bills. And we'll use that as collateral to buy another 50 cents of a treasury futures ladder. So if you put that together, you can sort of think of it as, all right, you've got 50% core bonds, which is going to be a mix of treasuries, mortgage-backed, corporates, some other stuff as well, plus 
50% treasury ladder. Okay, so one of the things, one of the knocks that I've heard on high yield index, I know this is outside of the scope of what we're talking about, but it's just the thought I have, is that it's like market cap weighted. And when you get market cap weighted in bonds, you tend to skew towards lower credit quality companies. Is that a concern or is it less of a concern just because if you weight it against like treasuries and mortgage backed, it's not, it's not, it's not like that big of a overall port part of the index. Yeah. So th there's really two points here. So, so I'll address the index problem first, which is, yeah, within the index itself, actually, there's an argument that it's become overweight treasuries and mortgage backed. And one of the things I think it was even John Bogle said, people might consider pairing that passive market with more financials huh that there's actually a, not enough corporates in the index anymore and so you might consider pairing it with an explicitly corporate bond fund if you want some of that interest premium that point about the way these are constructed right so in equities when you talk about a passive index it's market cap weighted based on the market cap of these companies in bonds it's issuance weighted yeah so the company that has the largest bond issuance those bonds are basically you know the largest part of the market and so hence treasuries and mortgages are the biggest part of the, the core u.s market now i guess my counter argument would be well the market accepted those bonds like it's not like a company can just say i'm issuing a bond and just dump it on the market yeah like they have to be bought someone has to agree to buy those bonds and so if Disney can sell all these bonds at a certain credit rating and the market eats it up, well, wh why is that not the appropriate amount of bonds to be out there? I, I don't know. There's not, it, it's a tough one. I don't necessarily, I'm not sure I agree with the fact that it's always like the worst credit companies that have the highest amount. I don't think that's necessarily true, but this issuance weighting is sort of weird with the idea of like the companies with the most debt have the highest weight. And is that what you want? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's very efficient use of debt. Like if Disney can get a credit, you know, a, a yield that is lower than U.S. Treasuries going out 30 years, like, isn't that a very efficient use of debt for them? Yes. And and that I, I think actually corporate high yield, when I look at the companies that make up a lot of that, it's a lot of the companies that I, I like to study from an equity perspective. So I tend to agree with you. I guess that the worry would be sort of the serial issuers that are, it's really like kind of these zombie companies or whatever yeah. that the high yield, uh, high yield especially seems to have like that the adverse selection there could be a problem. But to your point, if you're right. weighting it against treasury issuances, it's probably not a huge. Yeah. I don't think it's a huge issue in like a core U S bond index. There's certainly some composition considerations in high yield, but, it's one of the reasons why people tend to have the belief, and I think empirically this holds true, that bond managers are able to beat the bond benchmark a lot more easily than active equity yeah. managers can beat the equity yeah. benchmark. It's just the benchmarks, it's one of these like, we inherently understand they're they're subtly flawed, but no one's come up with a better way to do it. Yeah, interesting. Or if they have, it hasn't really taken off. So how do you choose the managed futures manager or are you the manager? Yeah, so we are our partner in this project is a firm called Resolve Asset Management, and they've been running managed future strategies for a very long time. 
So we we we're the sub on on one side of the product, and they're the sub advisor on the man futures side of the product. And really, what we wanted to do with this suite of products was try to hit the ball down the middle of the fairway for all of our investments. What does that mean? Right. When we talk about, let's say, U.S. stocks plus managed futures, the U.S. stocks, we're not doing anything active there. It's just S&P 500 exposure, just cheap beta, because we want to just give people the beta. We don't want them to have to say, well, I don't like the way you're picking stocks or I don't believe in your factor tilt or it is. We just want to give them the beta. We wanted to do something similar on the managed future side. Here's the problem. What is what is beta for managed futures? Like that's a for an active trading strategy. How do you how do you? come up with a beta in the institutional space makes futures and, and we spoke focus very specifically on trend following what most institutions would benchmark to is what's called the sock gen trend index mm, okay now the sock gen trend index is an index maintained by the bank sock gen it's basically gets 10 managers who have open mandates primarily trade trend following and are willing to report their returns, net returns daily to SockGen. Hmm. They, they rebalance the index in January, say who the managers are, and then track it throughout the year. And at the end of the next year, they they, re, they restrike who the, who the 10 managers are. But it's typically the 10 largest managers in the space. And in doing so, you get this sort of good cross-section because what's interesting about managed futures is it's it's a category that has a huge amount of return dispersion among managers. When you think of, well, again, we'll focus on trend following, where you're just trying to buy the stuff that goes up and sell the stuff that goes down. Well, what are you trading? Are you trading more commodities? Or are you trading more bonds? Are you trading more currencies? Are you trading really weird alternative markets? How fast are you trading? Are these really fast trends that you're trying to pick up on or really slow trends? How are you risk-weighting these markets? How, are you running with any sort of risk overlay like stop losses? All of this stuff, even though we can all generically say these managers are all trend-following, leads to a tremendous amount of dispersion in their returns because there's so many degrees of freedom with how they can choose to run, run their strategy. And so what you find is people who really like managed futures, if they pick a particular manager, that manager could be plus or minus 10, 15, 20% versus the average manager in any given year. And so what we wanted to do is say, well, we want to deliver the average. We're not trying to say we think we have some unique alpha advantage in delivering managed features. We just want to get something that looks like the benchmark. And so what we did is we built basically a replication-based model where we look at the returns of the SOC Gen Trend Index and we try to replicate it two different ways. But the ultimate goal is to create a return profile that looks as close to that average manager return as we can so that we're neither too hot nor too cold. We're just trying to hit the ball down. I mean this in the highest possible way of the compliment. Um, and I, I don't mean any of the negative connotation. You are a true financial engineer. Like well, you have engineered I, I a solution that I think is very interesting. And after following you, for, I don't know, I mean, since like 2019, 2018, something like that, It, I think this is a cool evolution of, it, it sounds to me like a lot of like what you and Jason used to talk about on Pirates, it sounds a lot about just sort of like the next iteration on how do I get capital efficient exposure in 
the like an ETF wrapper is super tax efficient. Like, I, I, it's cool. I appreciate that. I I would love to take the compliment, but the reality is, this is something that institutions started doing back in the 1980s. Well, you right? brought it so, to the public in a way. Yeah, yeah. So like Pimco, it's it's a cool story. Pimco started doing this in the 1980s, originally with what they called their Bonds Plus program. Then they started what's called their Stocks Plus program, and it's it's I think it's very cool the way what they sort of figured out, right? So here's here's what Pimco looked at. Pimco said, "Look, it's really hard to beat the equity market. All this evidence, even back in the 1980s, was like we're not." Pimco said, "We can't pick stocks, but we pick bonds really well." So if we know that we can get the exposure of the S&P 500 by just buying S&P 500 futures, and the return of S&P 500 futures is going to basically equal the return of the S&P 500 minus something that looks like three-month T-bills. It's a little bit more expensive than that, but something that looks like that. And then we can take that cash and invest it in bonds, bonds that we pick that have a little bit higher credit risk and a little bit more duration, but we think we've got a ton of alpha in bond selection, then we basically created an equity product where the alpha of that equity product comes from bonds. Yeah. And they launched that in the 1980s, and it was it's called their Stocks Plus program. They've actually launched a suite of ETFs based on the concept. The problem for retail investors and or advisors is it's incredibly tax inefficient to do it that way because you're getting ordinary income from the bonds and then S&P futures get taxed as 60-40 tax treatment and realized gain. So 60% long-term, 40% short-term, and you have to roll those futures every three months. So you're getting pretty much like the worst tax treatment possible. Even in their ETF. But for institutions, yeah, there's no circumventing that in the ETF okay. if you do it that way, which is why we do it the other way. We hold stocks with bond futures. Because the stocks, we can try to hold long-term cap gains and and defer and use the create redeem mechanism to manage taxes within the in the, within the stocks. And then we hold treasury futures. Well, those treasury futures also get sixty percent long-term, forty percent short-term, which arguably can be competitive, if not better, than getting ordinary income from those bonds if you held the cash bonds. So actually, the way we've structured the ETF is the exact opposite way PIMCO did it, and we did that for, for tax reasons. Back really quick to PIMCO. So, so they launched this in the 1980s. It wasn't until the early 2000s that the concept took deeper hold in the investment industry under this idea called Portable Alpha. And that's where institutions everywhere went, oh, why are we trying to like beat the market by picking stocks? Let's just get S&P beta and then we can take all the freed up capital and go invest in these really sexy hedge funds. And this is where, mm. uh, well, this is where the story gets ugly. Huh. All right. Because 2008 comes around and we talked about it a little earlier, like people don't like leverage. It's because if you look at every major financial catastrophe in like the history of the world, leverage is at the scene of the crime. Problem is leverage is never there alone. Leverage is always there with its co-conspirators illiquidity and concentration yeah. right leverage in and of itself is just a tool but when you take a concentrated position and lever it up or you take an illiquid position and lever it up that's when you get into real danger so let's use an extreme example i'm the harvard endowment and i've got all these stocks and i'm like man my managers suck none of them ever beat the market but this hedge fund over here that's doing 
I don't know, some really cool stuff in the mortgage market that I've never seen before. This really cool, you know, credit derivative stuff. Like, let's go invest with them. They seem like they've got alpha. So what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of all of our equity managers and take, if we have $100 invested with them, we're going to take 20 cents and put it in T-bills and use it as collateral to buy 100 cents of equities, either through futures or a bank swap. And then we're going to take that remaining 80 cents that we, we've now freed up and then go invest it in hedge funds. Well, what happens in 2008 when equities start to lose money? You've only got 20 cents collateral and equities had a 50 cent drawdown. So you're five to one levered. Doesn't take much of the equity market going down for all your collateral to disappear. No big deal. You just need to get some money back from the hedge yeah. funds. Right? Yeah, easier said than done. All right. And so all of a sudden the hedge funds go, well, well, problem. Everything we have is now totally illiquid and we're gating redemptions. Yeah. So you blow up on your equity position and you can't rebalance your portfolio and you're trapped in these illiquid investments. And so you have this leverage plus illiquid, you know, investment blows up in everyone's face. And all of a sudden portable alpha, everyone's like, this is a horrible idea. Why did we do this? Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think it's a horrible idea. I think the problem is you mix the leverage with illiquidity, which is a horrible idea. But if you can manage that liquidity risk, and there are some firms that have done it incredibly well, UPS's pension, Raytheon's pension, there are portable alpha programs out there that have tremendous track records of doing this very well, I think shown to be more effective than trying to find alpha in traditional sources, again, like trying to pick stocks better. What we're trying to do in wrapping it up in ETF is say, we're trying to find that capital efficiency in only liquid pairings. So if we do a dollar of stocks plus a dollar of managed futures, the managed futures we trade in are some of the most liquid futures markets in the world. If you said, Corey, I need 100% of my money sold today, great, it's out. Like these, these are not illiquid investments. These aren't things that get locked up. This isn't timber or something like that. We're talking about trading oil. We're talking about trading gold. Like these are highly liquid futures markets. And so there's no mismatch of, of liquidity risk. Anything keep you up at night about this? I mean, you're, you're levered, right? So yeah. you got a kid, you're not some, you know, young buck that's out here trying to swing. You got responsibilities. Like, where do you think it could go wrong? Yeah. So, so the answer is always, in my opinion, correlation risk, right? So I'm not, I'm not concerned. And again, I might, maybe I'm blind and biased because I, I build and run the products, but I'm not concerned about like them blowing up internally, right? This isn't like a three times levered S&P product or something like that. Like this is, I'm taking, you know, two things that are hopefully uncorrelated and that are highly liquid that I can rebalance back to 50-50 every single day. There's not a big issue of like the levered product blowing up itself. What concerns me then is using it as a building block in a portfolio and saying, okay, I own stocks, bonds, and managed futures are the three major things I invest in. And I'm 135, 140% levered. Well, what happens if they all behave the same? Yeah. Well, we saw stocks and bonds behave the same in 2022. Good thing managed futures did the exact opposite. They were up 25, 30%, depending on who you invested in. But what if they were down 25, 30%? Well, I'm going to have a lot, you know, my drawdown is going to be 33, 40% deeper than it would have been. Yeah. Or 1.3, 1.4 times deep. Yeah. So that's what makes me nervous is going, 
whatever I'm stacking on top, if that's a, enters an environment where its drawdown is correlated to the drawdowns of the classic asset classes, yeah, I'm going to be in trouble. So then do you have like a little tail risk on the side, like that you like one or 2% that you do or? I don't. And so the way I've sort of thought about this is saying, right, again, going back to the notional leverage is less important to think about than the vol of what you're levering. So for someone my age, 36, I probably shouldn't have that much in barns. Like I probably, I've got a long enough lifespan here. I should probably, well, career risk aside, I should probably have more of my net worth tied up in equities and, and longer duration investments. But what I do is I try to find the right mix of stocks, bonds, and managed futures that unlevered would be way too low vol for me. And then I try to lever that up to something that's like the risk of equities. But I think because of the diversification will, in the long run, beat equities. Now, I need to be thoughtful here about the tax consequences because I am going to get taxed on my managed futures. I'm going to get taxed on my bonds versus all equities would be much more tax efficient. But even post-tax, I think there's a significant enough advantage in that diversification and those return streams that if I build a more diversified portfolio and lever it up to the same risk profile as equities, my expected drawdown is probably about the same as as if I was just 100% equities. But I think my expected return is yeah. higher. Hmm. So I'm just... In, in many ways, I'm trying to use leverage to unlock the benefits of diversification because many times when you try to add diversifiers into your portfolio, you just keep decreasing your portfolio volatility. But in doing so, you're decreasing the expected return. Yeah, it's not a free lunch. You're just borrowing to re-up your lunch, for lack of a better term. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. I don't know. It's, it's smart, man. I At least it sounds smart to me. I appreciate it. There's, let me throw the other side of this. There's a lot of dumb things you could do here, right? So let's say I said to you, uh, take take your stock and bond portfolio and replace it with RSSB, and you take your freed up capital and buy, I don't know, three times levered junior gold miners. <laughs> like, well, yeah. like, that's probably a horrible idea, yeah. right? So you get 50% stocks, 50% bonds, and 150% junior gold miners. Like, that's not a good use of capital efficiency in my mind. So so they are tools that have to be used responsibly, but I think they're tools that unlock a new paradigm of portfolio construction for people who weren't going to be able to use derivatives themselves and for whom you know margin is going to be way too costly. This allows you to behave much more like an institution than has ever really been available before. Yeah. That's neat. It's the way the world should go, democratizing access to things. Well, and I think I think we're seeing that. I, I don't want to spoil anything for your listeners, but you mentioned that you're having our, our friend Wes Gray on coming up to talk about one of his ETFs. Am I okay to spoil yeah, this? Yeah, I, I got to figure out how that thing works. That thing sounds really yeah, his interesting. Bo his box ETF, and, and, right? and his box ETF is this brilliant little product that gives you a return that should be um, higher than T-bill, so cash T-bill return with a small premium, but without any, like in a purely tax efficient yeah, wrapper. That's what blew my right? mind. I heard that I heard the taxes on it and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. 
So it's a this brilliant product. And what I think, and if I take a step back and get out of my investment hat and just think about like running an asset management company, like that product to me, so it just, it just cost a billion dollars. And what's so cool about it, right, is you go, this isn't a strategy, like this is a product. He, he's wrapping up this very isolated concept. It's not something you say, oh, is he good at trading? Oh, how do you pick stocks? Like, no, he, he's trading box spreads in options. This is a well-documented concept. This is nothing new or innovative from that perspective. People have been doing this for a very long time. It's a well-trodden path. Like, so you don't need a back test. You don't need to wait and see the performance. Like, this is this is just a, a product. You're just packaging up this what one is single it? Is it a series of calendars? I believe so, okay. yes. So you're trading, you're trading two calls and two puts in a way that they are offsetting the the deltas yeah. and you're left with just the the expected the cash return. But it's because of it's in the options market, and Wes will be able to to explain this more to you. There's a slight premium in the trade of, of the cash return versus if you were just to buy the T-bills themselves. <laughs> and through the create redeem mechanism of the ETF, you don't you don't like if you were to do this in your own account, you'd have to buy and sell those options, which creates taxable gains. He can use the market maker create redeem mechanism to pass those trades out and get the next box spread in, in a way that doesn't create any realized taxes. It's genius. Right. So, so you, you, you have this product, which by the way, if he had launched a decade ago, would be totally uninteresting. Right. But all of a sudden you've got cash rates at a very attractive level. You got it packaged in this tax efficient wrapper. Like it's, it's, and it's super cost competitive. It's like 19 and a half bips versus if I were to buy T bills in an ETF, it's like 15 bips. Yeah. So I'm paying an extra four and a half bips for something that I'm not going to pay taxes on, on the total return until I sell the ETF. Like that, that is a product I'll be blown away if it doesn't get to 5 billion under the assumption rates don't go back to zero. Yeah. If rates go back to zero, no one's going to want that. Product. Yeah. But it's just, I love, I love it because again, it's a tool. It's not. Wes offers other strategies where he says, look, this is the way I think you could pick stocks. And I'm sure you and him could go all day about value investing. Yeah. But that's not this, right? This is just, hey, this is a tool. Yeah. Well, that's what I, that's what I think is so interesting is there are, I mean, I think your products are interesting. I think I, I, I just, as I was telling you before we cut on the show, I want to take the show down this route and I want to look into interesting products and interesting strategies that I or others don't know about because there's, I mean, there's only so much with stock picking and frankly, man, for me, I'm just running my own capital. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. Like I would need to outperform by so much to justify the additional time that I'd rather avoid taxes and, and, you know, I still want to buy businesses that interest me and it gives me an interest in the world. So I don't want to go away from it completely, but I do not want to dedicate my life to, to just picking stocks and have everything wrapped up in that. Yeah, it's it's a hard, hard game, right? I mean, people spend their entire day, year trying to pick stocks and, and the hit rate is low unless you know maybe maybe you can fish in certain ponds or have a certain edge but man it man is it tough you know i've largely come to the conclusion for my own personal portfolio like the reason i wanted to launch these products we were talking you and i before we started recording we we're talking about you know I, I had a kid a year ago part of the thing one of the things that happened for me when i was thinking about having a kid is like well, what happens if i get hit by a yeah. bus you know 
and I and one of the things I just wanted to bring into the world was like I want I want return the return stack suite someone to be able you know like the Bogle three fund portfolio yeah. like I want to I want someone to be able to just run a Bogle three fund portfolio concept with the return stack suite and be able to have a levered portfolio of stocks bonds and their alternative choice and and if I can just have my entire portfolio collapse into three TFs of stocks bonds and managed futures. I get hit by a bus, and it's a well-diversified portfolio that I have to say to my wife, just rebalance once a year, you know, and you should be good. I can sleep very yeah. well with that, right? And go, okay, maybe I'm not going to outperform stocks because I'm not picking stocks. Maybe I'm not going to outperform bonds because I'm not picking bonds, but I think I'm going to outperform over the long run because I have I have a high degree of faith in managed futures as being an additive diversifying return stream. I just think it's a better way to build a portfolio and I'm going to keep it simple. Like to me, that's, that's really what I wanted to sort of breathe into the world from a legacy perspective. Now, hopefully, you know, I've got many more years yeah, I'd rather to create a legacy, you. Like you know, but, you. but it was something that like had never crossed my mind in, in earlier in my career, pre kids. Yeah, man, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the things from, I've been talking to my buddy, Alex, the science of hitting and, he went through the art of execution. One of the, the things that the guy says in that book is that a lot of stock managers that have done really well have big winners. Well, like if I get hit by a bus and I have a huge winner, now my family just inherited like this massively concentrated position. That doesn't really help them that much. Right. Right. I mean, like, unless you know what to do with it, you're just kind of looking at this being like, I hope that business doesn't fall apart. And you don't know what to look for. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I can write it down, but like, you know, it's it's not the same. Absolutely. There and my my wife, as brilliant as she is, doesn't have an interest in this stuff. So I I constantly think about this as like, how do how can I bring products to market that I personally want to use to wrap my entire eventually, hopefully my entire net worth gets wrapped into three, four, five ETFs that are the return stack suite and just makes, and that's it. And then I, and then I'll, that is my boglehead solution. It's just that I don't believe, you know, you should be pure passive stocks and bonds. I think there are alternative diversifiers that should be incorporated to make a portfolio more robust and enhanced returns over the long run. And so that's, that's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, I like it. I'll tell you what else I like. I like your album art on your podcast. And I think that return stacked, uh, thing that whatever the la logo that is dope. I may need to get some of that swag. I appreciate it. You know, we're we're gonna do a little bit of a swag push this year. I will tell you a very funny story about this logo, though. Uh, the return stack logo that I'm wearing. Probably, I don't know, six or eight months after I we struck this logo, and and we had one an in house designer design it, and we we sort of somebody went back told and forth you they have it. I'm not joking. It is almost identical to another firm's logo. Huh. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like for us, it's like, there's an R. You got a stack an S, and it looks like an S. Going yes, on. it makes all the sense. They have, they have almost this identical logo without the R. And I was like, like it, there's no way to explain it other than it's a very generic concept. It's like things stacked on each other. But I was like, of course, of course. Now we don't, compete in the same space but they are they are an asset management firm and i was like all right well this we're, let's just hope we never cross paths 
I got a cease and desist for the business brew because some uh some no you did some um we we ended up settling it, but it's like some local not a rotary club, that wouldn't be the right thing. Chamber of Commerce has like a get together that they call the business brew. I was like, I, I'm not competing with you. I'm a podcast. You're a chamber <laughs> yeah, of commerce. Right. How how do Okay. Yeah, I think we ended up settling that they can use it in their state or something like that. I won't interfere. I don't know what it is, but that's I was wild. like, yeah, whatever. Well, that's coincidence. Wild. I think that's I dope. Man. I haven't it's had that issue with flirting the with the stacks. Yet. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you recognize it. Yeah, when we do, when we do a little bit of a swag, uh, a swag put, hats, vests, shirts. We'll get your size. Yeah, that's one that if if people were like, what is that? I'd be like, it's an R and an S. It's a return stack, man. Like, obviously, how can you even ask? All right, man. Well, I, what did we what did we not cover? I, I feel like that was a good conversation. Well, it's always a great conversation with you. But, I uh, appreciate yeah, that. I think, What's going on with Pirates? Uh, is Pirates dead forever? That's a good question. So so my Jason, my Jason, <laughs> my, uh, my colleague Jason, who I was doing pirates with, you know, we did it for a couple of years. And what's funny is we did multiple iterations. Like it started during COVID. Can I say, COVID? yeah, we'll just now get canceled on. No, YouTube. I don't think so. Uh, it started, There's <laughs> it no started monetization during, anyway. Yeah. Right. It started during COVID and we just had so much time, extra time that like we could do this very, what we wanted to do was like try to do some finance stuff that was entertaining. So if you go back to our very old videos, it was like we spent a week. There was production. Yeah, it was awesome. There was like we had, and it was a lot of fun. And then as the world picked back up again, both he and I were like totally unsustainable for us to do yeah. this anymore. Too much planning. And it was just like we weren't even making money from it. It was just us having fun and wanted to explore YouTube as, as like a, just a medium for for expression. So then we started doing more of an interview style or, or we, we, we hooked up with Blockworks and that format sort of worked, but I don't think Blockworks was really our audience. They're looking for more macro and crypto. Yeah. And I think the reality is like, I think about high level portfolio concepts and Jason thinks about high level portfolio concepts. And we have like, hopefully an eclectic set of interests, but it was like, I don't have a view on what the Fed's going to do. Yeah. I just... I don't even think the Fed knows what the Fed is going to do. Like, so, so it was really hard to like click with that audience. So then we went independent again and we, we did probably another year. Jason went to Europe. And so we took some time off and he came back from Europe and was like, you know, man, maybe we're not doing this anymore. And I was like, all right, you know, if you feel like you want to. Yeah. The reality is we got. I'm very happy to say we got really passionate, good feedback from it. Like people said to us, hey, it really feels like two guys in the industry just chopping it up, having a beer together. And that's what we wanted it to be. The problem is it doesn't really help us from a business perspective. Yeah. Like not that everything has to be purely for business, but at a certain point, we just said this actually might be a risk from a business perspective. Like, God forbid we say something stupid, which you, you host enough podcasts and you talk enough. I'm sure you're going to say something stupid eventually. Um, we don't need to get canceled over something that we're just doing for fun. And unless we really feel like there's a direction to what we're doing, let's hit pause. And if we feel compelled to do it again in the future, we'll we'll do it again. In the yeah, future. that makes sense. Well, you've got the feed, I assume, and you can throw out an episode here and there if you want to. Yeah, exactly. We talked about doing like a, a holiday special, but that clearly never happened. So, Do you still have a crypto Everyone horse? I don't. I got rid of my crypto. How'd horse. that go? I still sell. 
Uh, I definitely lost money on my crypto. Horse. Oh, it's better than a real horse. I promise that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I that one, that one, I really, I bought for an episode. And I think I gave it away to a viewer as a as part of a contest. Oh, nice. Which I'm sure it broke some law somewhere. But um, yeah, crypto, crypto was a wild ride there. Less interesting today, though. Less interesting in the last two years. Getting interesting again. Um, but yeah, not not as that, that was like a really again that whole COVID period was just ripe with like really interesting topics to talk about. I feel like things slowed down as they should, you know, over the last year. Yeah, there was there was probably a little too much to talk about back then. There was a lot of a lot of chaos going on. Yeah. There seems to be some chaos still, but I I have um at least you can avoid it if you try. Back in COVID there was chaos everywhere. Yeah. Did you ever get involved in the crypto game? I did not. I did not. I I still no. want to buy at some point I will buy a board ape. I'm just not sure when. They're getting cheaper every single That's day. That's what I'm waiting for, man. I want to buy one for you like know? almost nothing. That's it. I it seems like it will get well, I say that it seems like it'll get there. I think they're still close to like fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. So, so they're way cheaper than they used to be. They're still absurd. I was thinking like ten bucks. You might as well throw that bit out there. You never yeah, know. Yeah, just see if it hits. You never know. It's really interesting. I so I do keep up with a lot of that stuff, just like keep my finger on the pulse of the market and and i work with a crypto hedge fund in an advisory capacity and, and we talk more quant strategies but it's been interesting watching the evolution of that market where you had some very easy strategies that worked like the cash and carry trade was like just printing money and then the market imploded on itself for a variety of market dynamic and just outright fraud reasons right and then you had the market go into like what I would call pure PVP mode, like player versus player, like no new money was coming in. So it was all these grifts of like, can I get you to put your money in my token? And I'm pulling all the liquidity. And it was just like pure degenerate gambling for a while where like the long-term structural value of things just kept marching down. But in the meantime, something crazy would pop and everyone's just like pure gambling with each other. All the, all the a ton of firms that had entered the space, like traditional finance firms, started to exit because there was just no. It was too it became too competitive. There wasn't any easy money anymore. It does seem like in the last call it six to twelve months, we're starting to see a bit of a reversal of like, oh, fresh money is coming back in, and there are potentially some interesting real world applications of some things. But you know, we just got Bitcoin turned into an ETF yeah. or ETFified. So so we're starting to see some interesting re-adoption. But it'll be interesting to see how like the space emerges from all of this. Like those create those crazy like overinvestment, underinvestment, overinvestment cycles leads to leads to interesting behavior among the participants. I thought that the board ape thing at least my perception of it, I thought it was interesting how it married like online and offline. And, you know, to the extent the metaverse becomes something, which I think still may be, but I think the time horizon is just like way out there and people wanted to act like it was tomorrow. I, I think there's a lot of, I'm still, I still am intrigued by how it all develops. I'll say it that way. I don't, I think the prices no. got stupid. I think that it was futuristic. I mean, all that I think is objectively true, but I don't think it was necessarily totally dumb or misguided. I think for people who are digital native, right, or people who maybe came up in a younger generation where they spend a lot more time online, particularly if you spent any time in video games, like 
digital items have a true value, even if they don't exist in the real world. And um, and so I sort of saw Bored Apes in the same capacity of it was a it was a club where it got seemed to get really financialized. Is clearly the momentum you can you can't short this stuff. And and when you look at the history of financial assets, things that can't be shorted end up with very bubble-like behavior or risks very bubble-like behavior. Like you need shorts to bring symmetry to yeah, the market. Yeah, that makes sense. Not only from suppressing price upside price, but also their natural buyers when the market falls apart. And so shorters are a really important part of market structure and why whenever you see a market like ban shorting, it's a very bad sign in my opinion. Shorting is a hugely critical part of the market. But then you got this, this point where right? Uh, crypto was on a run. And by owning a Bored Ape, you were getting all these freebies. So Yuga, the company behind Bored Apes was, okay, now you get a spinoff NFT. And now you get the second spinoff NFT. Now you get ApeCoin. Now you get land. Now you get, I mean, the amount of value, I think at peak, and, and I might be wrong, but if you had minted a board ape, if you held that board ape plus all the things that got spun out to you from owning that board ape, and you never sold them, I think at peak the total value was worth over a million dollars. Wow. So it sort of became this like I don't want to say always like a greater fool theory, but it's like, well, if I know Yuga has all this money and they're going to try to deliver value, and part of the game is just like keep kicking us things that have maybe perceived financial value and i can sort of print that as a pseudo dividend like that's actually arguably the the present value of this asset isn't in totally wrong it's just everyone has to believe in the yeah. future stuff coming yeah. and so when the space fell apart that that perception kind of fell apart but it, i don't think it was it was irrational in a bubble for sure but i think there are some components of it that were tied to like some speculative theory about cash flows that were coming. Yeah, and I and I I'd like to think there's some speculative theory about where the world may be going that's not totally wrong. I just don't think it's going to happen 100%. tomorrow. Yeah, and and I don't know whether whether it's going to happen with bored apes or punks or some other NFT or whether it's on, you know, whether it's uh, the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum or Avax or Solana. Like so much of this is just. When it's all new, it's hard to know who who the winner is going to be. Yeah, whether there's one winner or not, you know. Well, what was it? Is the movie Ready Player One? I think it is. I think that's the one. Which one? What? That is a yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. I think I like. Don't they go into digital? <laughs> the clubs like, that's and like stuff the metaverse like that? movie. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not uh, an impossible thing for me to fathom down the road. Hey, look, Apple. Apple's got their goggles now. Yeah, you've got Facebook's got their Oculus or whatever it's called, and. I I am sure that, you know, our children will have those things strapped to their faces and walking around a metaverse and they're going to have some avatar. And whenever there's avatars, I'm sure there's a way to buy a better avatar. Dude, we've been rewarding my kid for A's on tests. First of all, I didn't realize how many tests there were. I think I'm going to modify this to grades. But with Robux... And finally, I was driving in the car, and I was like, I, "You're not getting Robux anymore." I was like, "If it, I it was nine dollar or nine ninety nine, I mean, I give them ten bucks, but nine ninety nine, I was like, I'll put five dollars in the bank for you, or we can invest five dollars for you, and then you can spend five on Robux. But you're not. I don't think I'm incentivizing the right long term behavior by giving you this many Robux to just spend. And to his credit, right. he understood. 
Now imagine if those, so you can buy the Robux, but you can't take the Robux and turn them back into cash. Can you? I don't believe so. If you could, you'd have a massive VIG. Yeah. So I'm just saying like, you're going to like this digital economy thing, right? You're going to have people, this happened in the Philippines during, again, during COVID where people started playing these digital games. I think it was Axie Infinity and earning crypto and then turning that crypto into dollars. And they were earning more doing that than they were having local jobs. Yeah. That's crazy. Crazy. Here's a crazy story for you. All right. So I, I, I know this podcast is going long, but there was a time. So there's a game called RuneScape, which is still wildly popular, but started in like 2001 back when I was a young teen and played the game. And there was a time when there were all these players that came online and none of them spoke English. If you tried to talk to them, they wouldn't speak. They weren't bots, but they were players and no one could figure out where they were from. And they spent all their time like mining ore and doing these things in game to create items. And there was a black market where those items could be sold for US dollars. Huh. And they were, they were a huge part of the game. Then all of a sudden there was a blackout in Venezuela. Huh. And all of those players disappeared. Well, it turns out what happened was the, the, there was such bad inflation risk in their local economy that these people were spending their time in a virtual economy to earn virtual currency because that virtual currency had less inflation to the dollar than their own currency. Wow. So there are these, you know, and I know we come from a very privileged point in the U.S. where like the dollar has been an unbelievably stable in, in the world reserve currency. But there are these like weird cases where you go like it can make economic sense for someone to spend all day playing a video game, earning a digital currency because Americans are going to take their real currency and try to buy themselves an advantage on the black market from someone else doing work. Like we're basically paying them entertainment. Yeah. Right. And they're doing this service so that we can sort of jump our way up the rungs. Or, but I was just I love that story hmm. because it's like it sort of talks to like how these services, you know, we're we're playing for entertainment and we want to. OK, I don't want to spend all day mining ore. I'll buy all the ore from someone else. And it for them, they're earning real dollars. And I'm basically paying them a service fee in U.S. dollars all through this black market of in-game currency. Now take that and make it actual, make it crypto. And you don't, you remove the black market and it is transferable. Like, why is that not, for me? Why is that not like, why does the crypto not have value if I'm willing? I mean, isn't this the theory, a lot of the theory behind Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you could absolutely do it with Bitcoin. You probably, I mean, to do it with a game, you probably need something that, a blockchain that moves a little faster. But yeah, absolutely. Like, does Bitcoin make sense? One of the one of the conversations we were having internally when talking about recent crypto moves was how is there a way to figure out with the Chinese stock market recently imploding, how much were people trying to get their money out of the Chinese stock market huh. into something more stable like Bitcoin? Yeah. Even though crypto's banned in China, right? Yeah. Is it easier for them to get into Bitcoin than into US dollars or US assets? Probably. I mean, I don't know. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of fascinating international use cases that we as Americans look down upon and go like, well, you know, what American is going to spend all day trying to earn a digital currency to sell? Like the, it's well below minimum wage. Well, it's well above local minimum wage, especially when you consider inflation risk for a lot of third world countries. 
and then Americans are basically outsourcing some sort of entertainment service. Yeah, that's right. I I do not disagree with you. I like that. Anyway, crazy crazy stuff. All of which I think you know is to just say I like to keep an open mind to this weirdness because I, I don't think it's totally devoid of rationality. Well, I tend to agree. Uh, people can find you where flirting with models is in season. Is flirting not with in models season. is the podcast season seven? There you go. I say quite. I don't know. Uh, I guess sort of arbitrarily. So it used to be I released seasons every summer, and then I just randomly started a season this winter. I think I'm going to just go every year as a season, and I think I'll release a podcast a month. But I feel like you and I are like on the same wavelength when it comes to podcasts. It's like, eh, we do it. We don't. Yes. All right, I'm in. I'm That's out. Right. Like That's exactly right. So we'll I'm see. Motivated so to flirting record. with models. I need some time off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm burnt out. Oh, I'm all in six episodes in, in two weeks. Like yeah, that's right. You know, so it's so flirting with models and then on Twitter at Seahofstein or X or whatever it's called now. Those are those are places. And if you're interested in any of the ETFs we talked about, returnstackETFs.com. I'll just, uh, for my compliance, say please read the prospectus. Make sure you understand the risk factors before investing in, in any product. All right. We'll drop the prospectus link in the show notes. Make it easy for people. I appreciate it. Yeah. That's great. All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks. Thank you for your time. It.